Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 26 this morning. If there are two things that people don't like to talk about, it's politics and religion. I can remember doing street evangelism on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, and I was trying to speak to a gentleman after we had done a chalk drawing of sorts about the gospel, and he proceeded to tell me there's two things I don't talk about. I don't talk about politics, and I don't talk about religion. And then he proceeded to give me all of his opinions about politics and about religion. So I think he wanted to tell me what he thought. He just didn't want to hear what I thought. What is Jesus' opinion on politics and religion? How does Jesus divide the church and the state? Who would Jesus vote for? Is Jesus a Republican? Is he a Democrat? Maybe he's a Libertarian, or he's in the Green Party, or he's an Independent. I think that might be the best way to think about it. We're not going to answer all those questions this morning, but I want us to think, and Jesus wants us to think, about authority. The authority of the government and the authority of God, and how we as followers of Jesus should respond to earthly governments and the authority that they have, and how we should respond to their rightful authority that God has. Jesus sums up his thoughts in a very pithy phrase, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so we'll just think about our main idea this morning based on that. Give the government what is theirs and give God what is his. I think that's what Jesus is telling us. Give the government what is theirs and give God what is his. Try to work out exactly what that means as we go along. But there's there's two things that are kind of going on in this, this passage. In one sense, the theme of the authority of Jesus and the rejection of that authority by the religious leaders is, is continuing. Remember, we've been talking a lot about that. Jesus has come with authority. He's making it clear who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king, that he is the, the, the king of Israel. He's the savior of the world, and the religious leaders are continuing to push back against that authority. They don't want him to rule. They want, don't want him to reign over them. And so that theme is, is sort of continued here, but we also have this theme where Jesus is given the opportunity to comment on the authority of, of Caesar, the authority of the government. So we'll get to think about what is the authority that the government has in this world. And so as we think about this passage, I, my hope is that we would let Jesus and his words shape how we think about authority, how we think about the authority of God, and we how we think about the authority of whatever government we might live under. And we have to think about this, don't we? I mean, this is something that we, we have to wrestle with, especially when we look at a government and maybe we disagree with decisions that they are making. Uh, we're not at a loss for those things. When we think about how the government deals with the issue of abortion, How are we to respond to a government who is over us, who advocates for abortion? Or the most recent debate that's in the news all over the place is the definition of marriage. How do we respond to a government who has authority over us when they start to say things that are contrary to God's word? How how do we deal with the authority of local governments? How do we deal with the authority of police? It's pretty big in our day, isn't it? How do we deal with that as followers of Jesus? 
And how do we think about those that are in other nations where they the, the proclamation of the gospel is hindered or people are persecuted for naming the name of Christ? How are they to live underneath that government and also live underneath the authority of Jesus? So this is important for us to, to think on. This is not just sort of theoretical or, or high, highbrow sort of stuff. This is on the street things that we need to think about. So let's, let's look at Luke 20 verses 19 through 26. And as we do, just remember what's been going on. Jesus, again, has been asserting his authority, proclaiming his status as prophet, priest, and king, and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders have have rejected him. And Jesus just told this parable, you remember, where, where he was exposing that the leaders of Israel had consistently rejected the word of God, and now they were rejecting Jesus, so much so that God was going to cast them out and invite the Gentiles to come into salvation. And so right away here, as we start in verse 19, we're going to see their response to that parable. Luke 20, beginning in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You can see in verse 19 that the scribes and the chief priests clearly understood Jesus' parable. They totally got that it was a parable against them. It was a warning to them. It was a call to them to stop rejecting his authority and to submit to it. Surely Jesus was not saying this just to say this is who you are and there's no hope for you, but he was inviting them in many ways that they would repent that they could. Of course, God also knew that they would persist in their rejection of him and what is written in the parable would come true, that they would in fact kill him. As we think about there, there's a negative example here and I just want to point out a couple things that we can learn from the negative example of these leaders here in verses 19 and 20. And the first thing that we can see in them that we should also look for in our own selves is that pride keeps us from repentance. Pride keeps us from repentance. We've been seeing this a lot in this passage, so I just pointed out again to you that that they understood Jesus' parable. They knew that it was against them. They saw that he was trying to correct them, that he was trying to draw them to repentance and faith. But instead of repenting of their sins, what do they do? They become more entrenched in them. Instead of turning from their sins, they increase their sin, so much so that they just want to lay hands on Jesus so that they could kill him. That laying hands on, that's not a positive laying hands on. This is laying hands to grab and to to kill him. They would not submit to him. So they determined to make him submit to them, and they were going to do it by force. You know, when when Jesus 
confronts us and he proclaims that he is to be the king over us, that automatically is going to expose the sin in our lives and it's going to expose the pride that we have and the desire that we have to rule. And as we've seen, our natural sinful response is to reject the rule of Jesus and to say, no, I'm in charge. We're kind of like that stereotypical male who um, is driving and gets lost and refuses to ask for directions. I've been there. I know I'm lost, but I just, I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. And if I would just humble myself and, and ask for help or listen to my wife, then I would be saved many hours of wandering, but I just persist in my ignorance. And so too Jesus comes. He comes as, as the light of the world and our foolish pride causes us to want to snuff out that light. I don't want the light to expose the darkness in me. I'd rather just try to figure it out myself. What does God want us to do when the light comes? He wants us to repent, to humble ourselves and to repent. When God's word comes to us and it exposes our sin, we should humbly repent. When a brother or sister in Christ comes and makes us aware of the ways that we maybe we are failing and living lives of, of holiness or of love, we should repent. We shouldn't entrench ourselves and reject that. We should repent. When the Spirit opens our eyes and we see our sin, our response shouldn't pridefully be to to, to grieve the Spirit, but to respond to the Spirit and, and to repent with humility. So there's this negative example of, of the religious leaders, and it tells us that pride keeps us from repentance. The next thing we see with these guys is that fear of others leads to hypocrisy. Fear of others leads to hypocrisy. The root of hypocrisy is fearing others. The, the leaders reject Jesus Jesus' rebuke because of, of their pride, but their fear of the crowd, so the crowd loves Jesus and they're scared of the crowd, causes them to turn into actors so that they pretend like they accept Jesus only so that they can catch him. It says here they hired spies. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They, they hire spies to go to Jesus and pretend to be sincere. It's the verbal form of the word hypocrite. They, they, they become hypocrites. They become actors. And, and all these words in this passage, they have this idea of, 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 it says that they might, they pretended to be sincere that they might catch him, that they might pounce on him. Um, they're, they're like, they're like little spiders, you know, and they're spinning webs trying to catch prey. They're trying to catch Jesus in something he says. So they're these, these spies. Isn't it ironic too? What do they want to do? They want to catch him so they can do what? Verse 20. To deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Their rejection of Jesus' authority. They're rejecting his authority. But they want Jesus, they want to trip him up so that they can make him submit to the authority of the governor. Ironic, isn't it? And they're trying to set this trap, but in fact they catch themselves in their own trap. Reminded me of Proverbs 1. Remember they, these guys that they talk about in Proverbs 1 are going to set an ambush for the innocent, but Proverbs 1.17 says, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. The trap that they're setting is the one that they're going to get caught in themselves. So fear of others leads to hypocrisy. They're scared of others, so they they start acting 
like they fear Jesus when they don't. I think that's interesting to think about, isn't it, in our own lives? Does, does the fear of others lead you to hypocrisy? Do you feel pressure maybe from family or friends to submit to Jesus, but you have genuine questions about your faith? Not really sure about how to answer some things, but you feel pressure to act like you got it all figured out. Maybe you don't want to submit to certain things. Maybe you're a Christian, but rather than confess the ways that you are struggling to others, rather than submitting to Christ, you are pretending. You're acting like everything's okay. I can find that easy to do. I'm a pastor, right? i got to have everything together. There's no way I can talk about the ways that I'm struggling. You're in some other position, and you feel the same way. You're scared of how others might respond. If I confess my sin, if I tell someone I'm struggling with this, then what will they think of me? And our fear of others leads us into hypocrisy. We wear masks. We become actors. And instead of being open about who we are and the things that we're struggling with, we we pretend. As a church, as Christians, we need to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's all right to not have everything together. We need to be a place where people who are away from Christ can come and ask honest questions without fear of being judged. We need to be a place, not where sin is celebrated, but a place where sin can be confessed, where people can share struggles with others and and not fear judgment. But let's, let's be that. Let's not breed hypocrisy in our church. You know, so I'd say if, you, if you're here today and, and you're acting a certain way because of fear of others, I want to invite you to, to take that mask off. Maybe you do have questions about Christianity. Ask those questions. Hypocrisy doesn't help anyone, especially you. If you're struggling with, with, with certain aspects of the faith and you, and you don't know how, who to ask, ask anyone in this church. You can ask me and we're not going to judge you. We're going to help you understand the truth of the gospel. You have hidden sins. Find someone to confess those sins to. Someone that you trust. Hypocrisy doesn't help you. Hypocrisy causes us to, to hide our sin. And when we hide our sin, we don't deal with it. Sunlight is a great disinfectant. Sunlight exposes, when we, ex- when we expose the things that we're dealing with, it helps us to deal with them. So instead of fearing others, we should fear God. We should revere, we should respect Him, we should submit to His authority and His rule. Pride will keep us from repentance. So let's be those that humbly repent. And fear of others will lead to hypocrisy. So instead, let's be those who walk in the light. Well, these dishonest spies come. They're sent by the religious leaders. Probably because the, the Jesus recognized all the religious leaders. So they thought, well, let's send some fresh faces that he doesn't know. That way when they ask a question, he won't know that they're trying to, to trap him. I mean, if we ask the question, he's going to know that we're just trying to trick him. So we'll send people that he doesn't know. So the spies come, and the first thing they do is they try to get Jesus to let his guard down, you know. They butter him up there. Verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. If only they really believed what they were saying, right? I mean, that that's true. Everything that they're saying there is true, but they don't believe a word of it. They're just saying it to try to get Jesus to let his guard down so they can trap him. 
If only they would have not responded in pride and hypocrisy. They would have, they could have responded in repentance and faith. So then they ask their question, verse 22. Is it lawful, is it right for us to give tribute, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question has to do with paying taxes. Should we pay our taxes? It's a great question, isn't it? Should you pay your taxes? Simple answer is yes. I'll just say that off the bat. But, um, but more than taxes, this has to do with the authority of the government, doesn't it? It's a question that's designed to, to trap Jesus. They're asking this question and they assume there's two answers, right? Is it lawful, is it right for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So the answer can be either yes or the answer can be no. And and the point is that they want to undercut Jesus' authority with some group, either with the, the ruling government or with the crowd. So if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, then what is he? He's a rebel. He's a zealot, just like that one of his disciples, right? Uh, he's leaving the people to revolt against the Romans, and therefore they can take him to the governor and say, this guy's a revolutionary, and, and he's telling people not to pay their taxes. So if he says, don't pay your taxes, they got him. But if he says, pay your taxes, ah, oh, they got him there too. Because then he's in league with Rome. He's as bad as a tax collector. Of course, he had a disciple that was a tax collector too. He's got zealots and tax collectors. This is this interesting. And and so then, but if he says that, then the people won't listen to him. Because they hate Rome. They hate tax collectors, and they hate people that like taxes. And so he'll be out of favor with the people. Jesus asked a similar question to this, you remember, when he asked about the authority of John. Remember that? He asked about the authority of John, and there were only two ways to answer that question. And the the scribes and the chief priests wouldn't answer it because they would lose face or they would condemn themselves. And so what did they say? We don't know. I don't know. So what's Jesus going to do? Is he is he caught? Have they, I mean, have they trapped him? Is he going to say, I don't know. No, he's not. Look at verse 23. He perceives their craftiness. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He perceives their craft, craftiness. He sees right through them. That's a good reminder. It's a good reminder that we could fool everyone in the world, but we can't fool Jesus. You could be the perfect hypocrite. You could play the perfect part. Jesus sees right through you. We can play the part of a committed Christian at church or with certain people. We can act different around others and Jesus knows our hearts. He knows everything. Can't fool Jesus. So he asked for a denarius, right? Asked for a denarius, a Roman coin. And you can see everyone sort of rummaging in their pockets finding a denarius and one guy finds one and hands it to Jesus. Here's the denarius. It sort of sounds like the beginning of a magic trick, doesn't it? Let me see Denarius. There's nothing up this sleeve. Nothing up this sleeve. He's going to do something here. And in some ways it is. It's like a, it's, a, it's an escape act. In some ways, Jesus is going to get out of this question in an amazing, almost magical way. He holds up the coin for everyone to see. And he says, whose image is on this coin? Whose image is stamped on this coin? And they, they all respond. It's, it's Caesar's image. Of course, everyone knows Caesar's image is on that coin. And then in my mind's eye, the way that Jesus responds is he says, he, he begins this great statement. He says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And in my mind's eye, at that moment, he flips the coin back to the guy that gave it to him. You know, the guy catches it. He says, and give to God what is God's. And then sort of the music swells. It's just like, boom. I mean, he laid it down. He just silenced them. 
Jesus answers the question not with a yes and not with a no, but in a way that closes the mouths of these spies. Their response in verse 26 is not pride, it's not hypocrisy, it's stunned silence. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. It reminds me of, they they send people to go get Jesus, I think it's in John, and they come back and they said, no one ever talked like this guy. And all the leaders say, have you become disciples too? It's amazing, isn't it? It's 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 the perfect answer. He instead of getting caught in their web, it's like a he's like a machete when you're you know chopping through the the jungle and he just cuts right through it. They can't stop him. It's the perfect answer, isn't it? It is. But what is Jesus saying? <laughs> we should think about that. It's a great answer, but what's he saying? The first thing he says here is, "Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's." And then he says, give to God the things that are God's. So let's think about two questions. What is Caesar's? What is God's? What do we need to give to Caesar? What do we need to give to earthly governments? And we'll answer that question in three ways. What is Caesar's? First of all, nothing. <laughs> what is Caesar's? Absolutely nothing. Psalm 24.1 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. Deuteronomy 10:14 to the Lord to the Lord your God belong the heavens even the highest heavens the earth and everything in it. Abraham Kuyper has famously said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine. <laughs> we teach our kids not to say mine. And you can think about those seagulls. Is that in Finding Nemo? Mine, mine, mine. You know. But Jesus can rightfully say, mine, over everything, including you and I. As the creator of the earth, there is nothing that does not ultimately belong to God. Therefore, there is nothing that belongs to any of us, and there's nothing that ultimately belongs to any earthly government. No president, no king, no dictator owns anything or anyone. So what is Caesar's? Nothing. What else is Caesar's, though? Secondly, the things that God has given him. There's things that God has given to Caesar. Those are Caesar's. Romans 13, we read earlier, and I encourage you to look back at that at some point, even this afternoon. Romans 13 is clear that God has all authority and he has given some of that authority to other people. And one place that he has established authority is with earthly governments. So Romans 13 says that the government has been given certain authority. It's been given the authority to bear the sword, meaning it has the the right to punish those who break the law on God's behalf. It also says that it has the right to collect taxes, has the authority to do that. We could say more about this, but Paul kind of concludes in Romans with a helpful phrase. He says that we should give to the government what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Because in obeying that authority of the earthly government, we are obeying God because it is his ultimate authority. So should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes, because God has given him that right. Should we listen to the laws that Caesar puts in place? Yes. And we'll talk about there are exceptions to that, but as a general rule, yes, because God has given Caesar that authority. 
to set the rules and to, to bring punishment. So what is Caesar's? Nothing, but also the things that God has given. The, the rightful authority that the government has that God has given. The right to bear the sword, taxes, and we owe the government respect and honor is what Paul tells us. Thirdly, though, what is Caesar's? I want to say it this way, fading things. Fading things. That's what Caesar has. If I said to you all, show me a denarius, what would you say? Anyone have a denarius in their pocket? <laughs> if you did, you could sell it for big bucks probably uh, to a, uh, a museum. But the denarius is long gone, isn't it? And and so is the Roman government of Caesar's day, and so is Caesar. He has gone, he is long gone. And so we're reminded of, of the fading things, that, that the kingdoms of this earth are fading. They have authority, but they have authority over things that are quickly fading. So we, to, we are to render, we are to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To give it taxes and honor and respect and submission to the government's right to, to punish lawbreakers and to, to collect taxes. And we do it all while remembering that ultimately that nothing is the government's and what is theirs is fading. So that's what we owe to Caesar. Well then what is God's? What is God's? Because Jesus says give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. What is God's, and specifically, what am I supposed to render or give to God? We'll answer this question three ways, too. What is God's? I bet you know my outline. Everything. Everything is God's. We, we made that very clear. Everything is God's. We've seen that God is the creator. He is the ruler over all. Therefore, the, the whole earth owes its ultimate allegiance to God and to his kingdom. Eventually, it's funny, the charge against Jesus that the Jews are going to bring is that he made himself out to be a king. Isn't that interesting? That's what they, the only thing they can get him on. And he is the king. He's the ruler over all. And one day, every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, seen and unseen. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is over everything. Everything is God's. More specifically, though, secondly, the things that God has given to Caesar are God's. <laughs> what is God's? The things that God has given to Caesar are also God's. All, all authorities operate on a, on a borrowed authority, right? There's a chain of, of command, just like at your workplace. You've got some authority. So you have this authority, and it's been given to you by someone else. So your boss says, you're a supervisor over these folks and you report to your boss and your boss reports to the boss's boss and the boss's boss reports to the boss's boss's boss all the way up the line, right? So there's there's authority at the top that, that trickles down and you have authority only because it's been given to you. But who has the ultimate authority? Well, the, the president or the owner or whatever it might be. And so we, we have this picture here now that there's a chain of command. And so in obeying and respecting and honoring earthly governments, we are obeying and respecting and honoring God. 
because God has given them that authority. In general, then, to to disobey, to disrespect the earthly government is to disobey and to disrespect God. So I can pay my taxes for the glory of God. Because God has given the government that right. I could even do it joyfully. (laughs) I can obey the laws of the land to the glory of God because I'm obeying the authority that God has put over me through the earthly government. I can go to court and pay my speeding ticket to the glory of God because God has given the government that right to use the sword to enforce laws. I can pray for the president to the glory of God because I'm to give respect to whom respect is due and the offices do respect. Even those that are in governments where there is no freedom of religion, where people are told to not speak forth the gospel, there's a way to respect and to honor that government as an honoring of God. Because God is the one that has the ultimate authority, and he has given it to the government. He's given it to Caesar. So what is God's? The authority that is given to Caesar is God's. And so therefore we listen to that authority as listening to God. So what is God's everything? The things that are Caesar's. And finally, what is God's? Not fading things, eternal things. Yeah, eternal things are God's. If Caesar owns fading denarius, then God owns all the things that will never fade. If Caesar's image is stamped on coins, then God's image is stamped on eternal souls. Remember, what's the real question of this passage? What's the real question? It has to do with whether or not we are willing to submit to the authority of Jesus over us. And Jesus is calling his listeners to give Caesar the simple fading things that are his And he's calling us to give him the things that are eternal, the more important things, the things that really matter. So in some ways, he is dismissive of this question. Should I pay taxes to Caesar? I don't care. Sure. Yeah, pay taxes to Caesar. But will you submit to my authority? Why why does this even matter is in a sense what he's saying. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Sure. But give to God the things that are God's. You guys are resisting my authority over you. We should be concerned about the authority of government. It's a good question to ask about that, sure. But the more important question is, am I submitting to the authority of Christ? Am I submitting to the rule of Jesus? Does Jesus have all of me? William Booth, who is the founder of the Salvation Army, he was once asked the what was the secret of of how God used him. And his response was this, God has had all there was of me. There have been men of greater brains, greater opportunities than I, but from the day I had a vision of what God could do with poor old London, I made up my mind that God would have all there is of William Booth. He was fully submitted to the authority of Jesus. So we'll talk a little bit more about government in a second here. But does does King Jesus have all of you? Does he rule over you in that way? 
can Jesus Jesus can look over all of the earth and say, mine. Can Jesus look over every area of our lives and say, mine? Are we holding on to things? Are we unwilling to give certain things up to Him? Give to God what is God's. And what is God's? Everything. Everything, including our eternal souls. Now, pastorally, I, I think it would be remiss to not speak a little bit more about how we respond to government, especially when it goes against what God says. So let me just say a few things that are certainly not inspired, <laughs> but will hopefully get us thinking a little bit. So let me briefly summarize some thoughts about how can we submit to government but also submit to God. Because that, that's we need to give to God what is God's, but God also tells us to submit to the government. So how do we do that rightly? How do we honor God the way that he should be honored and honor government the way that it should be honored? So here's some thoughts for you to think about over lunch and maybe tonight. Um, just Here's three phrases. Participation but not trust. Participation but not trust. We have a, a, a role, especially in the United States, to participate in our government. But we should not trust the government. We should not put our trust in the government, I should say. <laughs> There's a difference there, isn't there? We should not put our hope in the government. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in what? The name of the Lord our God. We can participate in government. We should. We have a responsibility to do that. But we should not put our full hope and our full confidence in the government. Here's another thought. Patriotism but not worship. Patriotism but not worship. I think that we... We can be proud of the, the nation that we live in. We can be thankful for the way that God has blessed whatever nation we might live in. It's okay to have a flag at the front of your house. Notice we don't have a flag here. There's a distinction there. But it's okay to be patriotic. But, but it's not okay to worship the nation that we live in. Sometimes I think the worship shows up when, when the nation fails in certain ways. And suddenly everything is crushed for us because things are not going the way that they're supposed to go. My, my idol has been crushed. <laughs> we can be proud of the country. We can be thankful, but we do not worship it. What do we give to the nation? Here's the third one. Honor and respect, but not ultimate allegiance. Honor and respect, but not ultimate allegiance. We, we show honor and respect. God's told us that. But is my ultimate allegiance to the United States of America? No. My ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. And where those things come together and clash, I serve Jesus first. Honor and respect, but not allegiance. So what do we do when, when the government opposes what God has clearly said? What do we do with things that are happening in our day and age? What do you do with this whole redefinition of marriage that, that goes contrary to God's word and God's plan? How do we respond to our government in that way? How do we respond to a government who is okay with abortion? How, how do people in the past respond to a government that was okay with slavery or okay with segregation? What do we do? Let me give you four thoughts. First one, I think we respond like any sin. We respond with sadness. Sadness, but not despair. Sadness, but not despair. We can be saddened by sin. Sin is, is depressing. 
And when we see our nation making choices that go against God, we can be saddened by that. Because we know that that's not the path of blessing. It's not the path where things will go well for us. We should be sad, but we should not despair. But we should not lose hope. The world's falling apart because the United States of America has decided to change the definition of marriage. We can be sad about it, but the world is not going to fall apart because of that. Anger, but not vengeance. I think that's another right response to sin is anger, but not vengeance. We should be angry that things are an affront to God. It is right to be angry about abortion. It is a sin. It is pure evil. We can be angry about it, but we don't resort to vengeance. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. We don't blow up abortion clinics. We can be angry about it, but we don't resort to vengeance. And then I think there's this respectful dismissiveness that Jesus seems to talk about. So sadness but not despair, anger but not vengeance, a respectful dismissiveness. Just sort of, okay, do what you want. I feel like that's in some ways what Peter and John say when they're told to stop preaching the gospel, right? What do they say? You can decide whether it's right for us to listen to you or to listen to God, but we're going to preach the gospel. It's sort of like, you do your thing. If you feel like you want to arrest us because we preach the gospel, that's fine. You have the authority to do that, but we're going to do what we want. I think Paul almost has that when he says, you know, after he's imprisoned and they beat him and he's a Roman citizen and then they want to let him go, he says, no, you have them come here and tell them to release us. They beat us without trial. It's sort of like, you have authority, but, you know, I've also got, I'm just sort of dismissive of that authority that you have in a respectful way. What does Jesus say? Jesus says to Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority except my father gave it to you. My kingdom is of this world. It is not of this world. If my kingdom of this was of this world, then my followers would fight, but they don't. So there's just sort of this attitude of, okay. And I think that that's, that's a right way to think about it sometimes, is to say, you know what? Earthly government, they're going to make these foolish decisions. And I will respect who they are as a God-given authority, but I dismiss that. And we can just say, I completely disagree with what you're saying. We can look at something like marriage and say, you can say that, but you're wrong. We can look at nations where people are forbidden from preaching the gospel, and they can say, that's fine. Tell me that I can't preach the gospel, but I'm going to preach the gospel. And that kind of flows into this last thought. There's a willingness to resist. A willingness to resist. Not not an eagerness to resist. Not some sort of rabid desire to resist, but a willingness. You think about some of the past issues within our nation. You think about the Civil War. You think about civil rights issues. And there's a willingness to say this is wrong. I know many great Christian leaders who have been arrested and spent time in jail for protesting at abortion clinics. There's a willingness to resist. And I think that that is right. Well, I invite you to think about these things. Maybe add some more to your own list, and we'll think about it a little bit tonight. But as we are in the midst of this environment where there are times where the government goes against God's word, how do we respond? I submit these to you as ways to think about it. 
but in everything, ultimately, we're submitting to the authority of God. We should render to God what is God's, that that's our greatest concern. I do think about Jesus in John 18. In John 18, this is what Jesus says. Pilate's there. So Pilate's the ruler. He enters the headquarters and calls Jesus and says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others, did others say it to you about me? Again, this sort of like this. Do what you want, Pilate. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Isn't that our, that, that's what we believe? My, the kingdom that I ultimately serve is not of this world. Then later on in chapter 19, this is another section in beginning in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. He realized that, I'm sorry, I went too far. Um, they wanted to crucify Jesus. And Pilate said, take him and cru- yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Isn't that interesting? I have authority, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. As we enter into taking communion, I just I want to think about that. So Jesus submits to the earthly authority. By submitting to that, who is he submitting to? He's submitting to God. And God takes the wicked actions of the Jewish people, of Pilate and the Roman government, he takes Jesus' willing submission to that wicked authority, and he turns it for the greatest good in the world. He takes the wicked actions of an earthly government and a weak ruler to accomplish salvation for us. Jesus was obedient. He was obedient ultimately to the Father. Obedient all the way to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we celebrate the fact that Jesus willingly submitted to God. And in submitting to God, he accomplished our salvation.